If you would, take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 5. We have arrived at the Sermon on the Mount. Of course, earlier this year, our Bible conference dealt with select passages from Matthew chapter 5 through 7, which is the Sermon on the Mount. So I knew when I picked Matthew's gospel, it would mean some material would get repeated. Apparently, we need it. I never stop needing it. I'm brave enough or maybe dumb enough to admit that there are sections of Scripture that sometimes I read with a bad attitude. Just say, yeah, yeah, right, I get it. I've read this before. But honestly, the Sermon on the Mount is never one of those texts. So here we are with me introducing the Sermon on the Mount, which seems like we already did once not too long ago. This will be a little bit different this morning, though. Matthew chapter 5, we're just going to read verses 1 and 2 for now. It says, And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for the day that you've given. Lord, we thank you for the snow. We know that you tell us through your prophet Isaiah that the, the snow that you give even comes with the hope of spring, that much like your word, you send it forward and it will accomplish your purpose. And we um, ask, Lord, that you would have your attention on our um, worship this day, that we would uh, do things that glorify you, that we would do all things decently and in order, that we would sing your praises and that we would con concentrate and, and contemplate your word. Please use your Holy Spirit to uh, open our hearts, to teach us what we need to know, to convict us of what we need to change. And Lord, help us to see your son, Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen. When Yahweh delivered the Hebrews out of Egyptian bondage, he led them through the Red Sea and then by pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, he took them to the base of a mountain called Sinai. And there they were encamped and God spoke to them from the mountaintop and yet they were not welcome to come to him. The day God spoke to them from that mountaintop, the, the mountain was on fire. The ground shook underneath their feet. There was, there was thunder and, and lightning and a definitely, definite, deafening noise. There, the display was equal parts awe-inspiring and terrifying. Hebrews 12, 19 describes it as the sound of of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the word would not be spoken to them anymore. Even Moses, as he came down the mountain with the two tablets of stone on which the Ten Commandments were inscribed by God himself, even Moses admitted fear as he delivered the law of God to the people of God. 
It's more than a coincidence that, that Matthew, early on in his gospel account, deliberately parallels that with the story of Jesus on a mountaintop speaking to and teaching his people. In one way, the Sermon on the Mount presents Jesus as a new and better Moses, bringing God's word to God's people. And since we'll see in a moment that Jesus' sermon takes those Ten Commandments as a text, the, the intended parallel of a, of a new and better Moses would have been evident to the original readers of Matthew's Gospel, that Jewish audience to whom he was writing. But for those of us who know Jesus for who he is, they have even greater clarity that he is better than Moses. Moses was only a go-between. He said in Exodus 31, verse 18, that the, the law that was written on those tablets of stone was, was, according to him, written by the finger of God. In other words, Moses did not think up the law. He did not take a chisel and carve the commandments into stone. Those are not his words. He is an intermediary intermediary to deliver God's word to God's people. But for those who know Jesus, this is God the Son. This is Yahweh himself born in human flesh. So that we know the very God who in Exodus 19 and 20 lit the, the mountain of Sinai on fire and brought the thunder and the lightning and caused the ground at the base of that mountain to, to shake under the people's feet, that God has come himself in the flesh and he on this occasion invites the people up the mountain to hear him talk to them face to face. You can read about that giving of the law of Mount Sinai in Exodus chapters 19 and 20, and it's right for us when we go there and we read it to, to, to read the account with the Hebrews and kind of tremble with them there. But then how foolish is it for us to open up Matthew 5 through 7 and to know this is Yahweh himself on a mountaintop and do anything less than tremble at it. Maybe there is no you know, bone-rattling earthquake, clashing thunder and fierce lightning and the thick cloud over the mountain. There's no deafening noise. And yet what we do find here is the unassailable authority of God Himself. In fact, it is that authority of God that makes the greatest impact in this sermon. It covers Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew chapter 7. Look at the end of Matthew chapter 7 for a moment and see what the reaction to this sermon is. Matthew chapter 7 verses 28 and 29. Matthew writes, And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. So Matthew wants you to know that the people who heard this sermon were not just struck by what Jesus said, but also how Jesus said it. There is authority. In fact, the, 
The word on the people's lips that day isn't really one that we can translate well into English using just one word. The word in Greek is exousia, and it means authority and power. It is the very word that you would use for a political ruler who possesses both the the right of office to assert his will and also the power and ability to enforce that will. So this comes with the idea of not just authority, but ability. And think about how fitting this is for Matthew's gospel. What has Matthew been showing us in the first four chapters? When he writes, here's the Here's the son of Abraham. Here's the son of David. He is is born in the the city of David, Bethlehem. Here's John the Baptist preparing a way for him, preaching, you have to repent for the kingdom is at hand because the king is almost here. Who is Jesus according to Matthew? He's Messiah King. This is the Messiah King. And so very early in this gospel, Matthew wants to, wants to say to us, look, listen to him. Listen to him speak with royal authority. And frankly, it is like Matthew cannot get to this soon enough. Matthew intentionally skips ahead in the story in order to record the Sermon on the Mount. I know this is going to tax your memory, but when we started Matthew's gospel, I noted in the introduction that Matthew does not lay out his gospel in chronological order. He, of course, he starts with the, the birth of Jesus and ends with the resurrection of Jesus, right? He's not taking those things out of order, but he is mainly throughout the book arranging his gospel according to themes or according to topics, and so at the end of Matthew 4, as we looked at it, he's, he tells us that Jesus has moved to Capernaum. He calls four fishermen as disciples. And he says he, he travels around preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And then he opens Matthew 5 by saying Jesus sees all the crowds. He goes up onto a mountain and he calls his disciples to him and begins teaching, delivering the Sermon on the Mount. And right away, you know Matthew has skipped a lot of things that have happened because we know the disciples that Jesus calls to him are not just the four fishermen that Matthew has told us about. He has many more disciples who are following him, who he's teaching. And so without too much difficulty, you can do what's called a a harmony of the Gospels where you take Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and you see the stories that they're telling and you kind of put them in chronological order because they don't all tell us exactly the same stories. And when you collate the Gospel accounts into chronological order, you see just how far Matthew has skipped ahead in order to get to the Sermon on the Mount. So at the end of verse, or at the end of chapter four, he tells us that Jesus has gone to Capernaum. He calls four fishermen and his disciples. He travels around preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And then chapter five, he opens by saying he goes to a mountain, calls his disciples to him, and begins teaching. <clears throat> 
All right. What we know from harmonizing the Gospels is that after calling those four fishermen, Jesus entered into the synagogue at Capernaum where there is a demon-possessed man and Jesus expels that spirit. Jesus then heals Peter's mother-in-law. Matthew's actually going to tell us about that later on in chapter 8. That night that he healed Peter's mother-in-law, people flock to Peter's house in bringing sick and diseased and demon-possessed folks with them for, for Jesus to heal, which Jesus does. And then he goes south into Samaria preaching to and, and, and meeting with the woman at the well and sparking faith there into Samaria. He travels back north into Galilee teaching in synagogues. At one point, a leper comes to him, and this is a real test. A leper comes to him begging for healing, and Jesus actually reaches out and, and touches the leper. Matthew's saving that story for chapter 8 also. While preaching in one house, there is a paralyzed man who is dropped down through the roof, and Jesus heals him. Jesus calls uh, a tax collector named Levi to be one of his disciples. He continues collecting disciples. Many follow him. He goes to Jerusalem, probably at Passover. And while in Jerusalem, he heals a lame man, telling him, rise, pick up your bed, and walk. He sends a man walking through the streets of Jerusalem, carrying his bed on the Sabbath day. This creates a huge controversy. What business does anybody have carrying a bed through the streets of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day? And so he returns home to Capernaum on another Sabbath. As, as he's returning there, his disciples reach out and are pulling pieces of grain. This brings more accusations from the Pharisees. And then Jesus further fuels the Sabbath day controversy by going into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and in front of the Pharisees healing a man with a withered hand. Now, many of those stories... Matthew will tell us later on in his gospel, but he's saving them for now. He's not telling us, here's the order that things happened. He's writing his gospel by theme. And the theme in the first section of Matthew is Messiah, King Jesus has come. And so you need to hear the Sermon on the Mount in the context of that Messiah, King theme right Matthew's saying look here's the king he is speaking with royal authority here's what citizens of the king's kingdom should expect and it's different from what you've always been taught you may recall that the central theme of the sermon on the mount is found in chapter 5 verse 20 where Jesus says for I say unto you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. The Jewish people in the time of the Gospels, they did not know what to think of this rabbi who insists that true righteousness is different from what they've always been taught. They had been steeped in the Jewish tradition history that sort of 
cemented their ideas of what righteousness is supposed to look like. If the scribes and Pharisees were any indication, righteousness looks arrogant. It looks confident. It looks callous. Righteousness is all about how you can keep the law of God all the while making sure that other people see you while you're keeping the law of God. Righteousness is, in their mind, self-centered. But in this gospel, Matthew Matthew is, in fact, already hinted at the idea that righteousness is not selfish. Remember, back in chapter 1, he introduces us to Joseph. And he doesn't just say there was a man named Joseph espoused to Mary. He says that Joseph was a just man. He is a righteous man. And yet, his righteousness didn't demand personal satisfaction. Joseph, we see, he's trying to to sort out a way to express righteousness in a way that doesn't bring shame on Mary. His righteousness is presented as a, a thoughtful, merciful, kind righteousness. This is what true righteousness is, and it's different from the scribes and Pharisees. But the scribes and Pharisees had led people to reduce the idea of righteousness to rule-keeping. They had even taken that, that law delivered at Mount Sinai, the, the law of Moses recorded in the first five books of the Old Testament, and they had broken it down into 613 commands, or more specifically, 365 negative commands and 248 positive commands or said another way 365 thou shalt nots and 248 you had better 613 commands is more than anybody can successfully obey every moment of your life right but the scribes and pharisees would say that they did they'd even in the course of In the course of the 1,500 years that had passed since the law was given, the scribes and Pharisees had even seemingly made the law more specific and more clear by explaining what each of those commands really means. After all, when you have one command that says, honor your father and your mother, what exactly is it that you have to do in order to honor them? What is it that you can get away with not doing and still be considered honoring them? When the law says you, you cannot do any work on the Sabbath day, that seems simple enough. But the scribes and Pharisees said that's not simple enough. They actually, they, they helpfully added explanations about what counts as work. If you walk too far, if you take too many steps on the Sabbath day, you're working. If you light a candle on the Sabbath day, you're working. If you light a candle the day before the Sabbath day, but leave your window open and wind blows in and blows it out on the Sabbath day, you are working. And so a man picking up his bed and walking through the streets of Jerusalem, or a man with a withered hand being healed, 
on the Sabbath day in the synagogue, you're really working, right? This, that's against the rules. This is the kind of thing that Jesus did that got people's attention. And so when Matthew 5 verses 1 and 2 says Jesus went up the mountain and started teaching his disciples, we know it is not just a, a few disciples that are hearing Jesus preach In fact, Matthew says in verse 1 of chapter 5 that he sees the multitudes and he goes and his his disciples come to him, but there are a lot of others around listening to Jesus as well. Lots of folks gather to hear Jesus preach. And when the sermon is done in Matthew 7 verses 28 and 29, when he ended his sayings, we saw it was the people that were astonished. Well, why? What is, it, what is it that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that's, that's really so astonishing? Well, he says that true righteousness does not look like the arrogant, confident, callous scribes and Pharisees that you think represent true righteousness. He starts by saying, look, the blessing of God is on an entirely different kind of people. In chapter 5, verse 3, it's on the poor in spirit. In verse 4, it's on those that mourn. In verse 5, it's on the meek. In verse 6, it's on those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, right? Not those who say they have obtained righteousness, but those who, you know, desire righteousness so much that they know they're not righteous and yet they want it so badly, it's like they're starving for it. In verses 7 through 10, it's merciful and pure-hearted and peacemakers and the persecuted. And if you start hearing that with the first century Jewish mindset, this this sounds initially like great news. The righteousness and blessing of God that Jesus is describing here looks nothing like you've seen out of the scribes and Pharisees with all their arrogance and all their confidence. You know, they were looking down on everybody who didn't manage to be as good as them. You could be hearing this sermon and saying, listen, Rabbi Jesus says I don't have to be as good as them. The problem is that's not what Jesus says in this sermon. Look at verse 20 again in chapter 5. I say unto you, unless your righteousness exceeds The righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You don't have to be as good as them. You have to be better than them. Better. Unless it exceeds, unless it goes past, unless you have righteousness that goes beyond anything you've seen from the scribes and Pharisees. Well, how do you do that? How can you possibly be more righteous than the very most righteous people you've ever seen? More righteous than people who have so digested the commands of God and so painstakingly detailed the law that they've produced their 613 commands and prohibitions along with all the detailed clarification and special instructions about how to keep each one? How are you more righteous than that? Is is maybe Jesus saying you, you can just do away with all the rules? 
You can get rid of the law of Moses that righteousness has nothing to do with obeying the commands of God. That just doesn't matter anymore. Well, no, very clearly Jesus is not saying that. Remember, this, the same God who delivered the law from Mount Sinai is the one who is now at this mountain clarifying the law in this sermon, and he has not changed his mind about what righteousness is. And so look at chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law until the law is fulfilled. This law is God's law. God has a righteous standard that is, that is unchanging. And God's standard for righteousness, it's not going to be abolished. It's not going to be amended. But the scribes and the Pharisees, for all their meticulous and detailed explanation of the law, they had not expanded the law. They had actually reduced it. Like, do you grasp this? Jesus is telling this crowd that the scribes and Pharisees did not make things harder on them, that actually the scribes and Pharisees are guilty of trying to make things easier on them. Listen, counting your steps on the Sabbath day is easy. Making sure that you don't light a candle on the Sabbath is easy. Making sure that your window is closed on the Sabbath day is easy. All of those are things that you do externally. The worst person you have ever met in your life, which might be you, but it's probably me, the worst person you have ever met can close a window or blow out a candle or not walk too far. Those are not difficult things. The scribes and Pharisees had reduced righteousness to the point of meaningless going through the motions. And so listen to what Jesus does. He goes back to the law, the simplest expressions of the law, the Ten Commandments, and shows what some of those things really mean in chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. You've heard that it was said by them of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders is, will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Whoever says to his brother, Racha, shall be in danger of the council. And whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Right? Okay, well, what is it to say that you shall not kill? What is it that murder really means? Murder does not happen at the moment of a gunshot victim takes their final breath. It's long before that. Murder doesn't happen the moment that you pull the trigger or even when you point the gun. Murder doesn't happen when the bullet enters into the victim's heart. It's long before that. It is a question of when did murder enter into your heart? God declares you and I hopelessly guilty of murder in our hearts the moment that our mind first contrives the inexcusable anger that would lead to murder. Even if you stop yourself long before you ever go through that external motion, God judges your heart. 
You get this? The, the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees was entirely external. It was found in this big list of 613 things you can either do or not do, and none of it did they ever care what you thought or felt, like what was going on inside of a person. The righteousness that God demands is internal. It is found in your heart. Or, frankly, Jesus is going to say the righteousness that God demands is not found in your heart. And that's the problem. He's not done. He, he goes to another of the commands in verses 27 and 28. You've heard that it was said by those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Right? You shall not commit adultery. It is not a command that you can fulfill just through abstaining from having that outward action of sexual relations with someone you're not married to. The body part most to blame for adultery is your heart. It is desperately, unknowably wicked. And in those dark recesses of your heart and mind where sexual immorality lies hidden away from the world, it is not hidden from God. God sees it. God judges it. The righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees were satisfied with just, well, just refrain from that outward action without regard to, to the issues of the heart that leads to that outward action. Incidentally, this becomes a constant source of fury and smoke between Jesus and the Pharisees. They could not grasp this teaching. They were unwilling to hear him on this. Later on in Matthew chapter 15, the Pharisees accused Jesus' disciples of being unrighteous because they didn't wash their hands before they ate food. They didn't, they didn't go through the ritual washing that was required of Jews. And Jesus' answer in, in Matthew 15, 16 through 20 was to essentially say like, don't you get it? Sin is not an external thing that's accidentally going to get inside of you if you don't wash your hands just right before you eat your food. Sin is about what's already inside of you. He says those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and they defile a man for out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornication, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. Those are the things which defile a man but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. The sermon that Jesus preaches in these three chapters It's not easy. Although in fairness, we should probably note, it is, it is unlikely that it is a sermon in the formal sense of the word that you would think of a sermon. If you pick up, you know, Matthew 5 through 7 and you read the Sermon on the Mount, it's probably going to take you about 15 minutes to read. And if any of you think that Jesus only preached for 15 minutes... Especially if you're wishing that Pastor Jason would be more Christ-like. This is just not how it happened. This is, this is much more likely a sort of concise outline of what Jesus taught over the course of several days about true righteousness. And it changes your perception 
about what sin is. Like Jesus uses the examples of murder and adultery, but his demand for true righteousness goes beyond that, right? He changes your perception about what it is to bear false witness. What is it that true righteousness requires for basic honesty? In chapter 5, verses 33 through 37, Jesus condemns those of us who get so caught up with making promises and oaths that we ignore really honest people like true righteous honesty can just say yes or no and that means yes or no right just basic reliable honesty it changes what you think love is really about look at chapter 5 starting at verse 43 you've heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy but i say to you love your enemies Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. You mean if you have the true righteousness God demands, you won't just show loving kindness to the people you like and to the people who like you. You will be like God himself whose righteousness shows loving kindness to everyone. That doesn't sound very pharisaical, right? In chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, true righteousness changes the way you think about giving charitably. It has nothing to do with being seen to give. And in chapter 6, verses 5 through 15, it changes the way you pray. Prayer is not going to be self-focused, since in your prayer you're going to be saying things like, your, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done. If, if I have food today, it's because you're going to give it to me. If I find forgiveness, it's because you've... And you'll be doing that all through private prayer more than public prayer. In chapter 6, verses 19 through 34, it changes how you think about your job and your money and your future. Your greatest concern won't be those earthly needs. It's going to be in chapter 6, verse 33, seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Because, remember, you hunger and thirst for his righteousness. You need righteousness that goes beyond the scribes and the Pharisees. You see how that theme just keeps going. And you'll trust if you're seeking God's kingdom and his righteousness, that he will take care of you. In Matthew 7, true righteousness demands that you judge yourself by a more strict standard than you judge others. Again, that's not very pharisaical. So how can we do all this? I don't don't want to make it more simple or more complicated than Jesus himself does. Like, I I certainly don't have authority to edit Jesus' sermon. 
To be sure, Jesus does insist on verifiable acts of righteousness. Look at chapter 7, verses 15 through 19. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. There's a difference between what we see on the outside and what God judges on the inside. In verse 15, false prophets can look like sheep but really be ravenous wolves inside. And so Jesus says that the righteousness he demands is like a tree. A good tree brings good fruit and a bad tree brings bad fruit. Our idea of righteousness doesn't really care what somebody looks like on the inside. Just like the scribes and Pharisees, our idea of righteousness tends to look at the external behavior only because honestly, that's all we can see. But there's someone who sees what's going on on the inside and he judges us on the inside. Incidentally, all the way through Matthew, when you get to chapter 23, Jesus is still preaching this same lesson. And he says that the scribes and Pharisees are like cleaning the outside of the cup, but the inside is filthy. He even goes a step further and calls them whitewashed tombs, right? You are like a burial cave that has been nicely decorated on the outside, but if anyone would actually look inside, they'd see it's full of decaying, stinking bones, and so it isn't that Jesus is saying what's on the outside doesn't matter. He's saying that what's on the outside should reflect what's going on inside, right? A good tree brings good fruit and he demands good fruit. And a tree that produces evil fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And you know he's not talking about trees there, right? And so what is, what is it that we can do with this sermon? Like in the coming weeks, and I don't know how many weeks, <laughs> we cannot take this sermon and say, King Jesus wants us to clean up how we behave on the outside. Clearly, that was the scribes and Pharisees thinking. But we also can't listen to or read this sermon and think that, Oh, well, he says that I'm okay on the inside because we're not. He's taking us back to the law and he's saying you need righteousness that goes beyond the scribes and the Pharisees because you're already murderers, you're already adulterers, you're already bad trees bringing bad fruit. And so where is it that we can find the righteousness that Jesus demands? We'll go back to chapter 5 for a moment and listen to what he said. When he takes us to the Old Testament law, the righteous standard of God, and he said, look, that's still God's righteous standard. It is not changing. But listen again to chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. 
Do not think. I've come to destroy the law of prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. God's righteous standard is going to be fulfilled. And who is going to fulfill it? He says himself, I've not come to destroy, I've come to fulfill. Jesus alone is the fulfillment of the righteous standard of God. Faith in him and the person and work of the Son of God is the only effective change for what's wrong inside of us. And when he changes what's wrong inside of us, that change is going to be displayed in in true righteousness on the outside of us. Had you been one of those curious Jews who followed Jesus up the mountain to listen as he taught his disciples, this sermon would have been just earth-shattering to you. The idea of saying that your righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees that it is the equivalent of pulling a pin and a hand grenade and tossing it into the crowd. You could not have surprised them any more had you done that. And you see it in Matthew's closing remarks about the sermon. In chapter 7, verses 28 and 9, when Jesus ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. This is just jaw-dropping, awestruck astonishment by the crowd for, for two reasons. What he taught, they were astonished at his doctrine, but also the way he taught it completely shocked them. He taught as one having authority and not like the scribes. Their reaction to the Sermon on the Mount was complete awe because For one reason, they had not heard good preaching before. Listen, Jesus has a preaching style, and it shows up in the Sermon on the Mount. And it's it's hard for us because we can't literally, like there's no recording of the Sermon on the Mount you can pull up on sermonaudio.com and listen to. There probably is, but don't believe that it's Jesus' voice you're hearing. You can't literally hear it, but if you just read it from beginning to end and think of it, you will will hear, like, the volume gets turned up every few verses. Like, I can't imagine Jesus beginning the Beatitudes at the top of his lungs, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who uh, mourn, right? He's not yelling at the top of his lungs. This sermon starts beautifully delicately about those who are mournful and meek and hungry and pure-hearted, but then it gets ratcheted up, right? I've not come to destroy the law, and then the heat gets turned up a little more intense unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. You're not getting into heaven, and that pace continues slowly rising until he gets to the final illustration, the very end of the sermon. Look at chapter 7, verses 24 and 20 through 27. 
Therefore, I say, therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it did not fall, for it was founded on a rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Silence. End of sermon. Okay, Peter, you want to come up and lead everybody in a closing hymn now? This is part of the jaw-dropping amazement and I don't think we should ignore that stylistically... This is great preaching. Content-wise, this is great preaching. And so the crowd is just stunned. This is, this is like nothing we've ever heard from the scribes. But there is something else. It's not just the style. It's the authority, right? Every scribe for hundreds of years had opened the scrolls of the New Testament. This is what their teaching was. They would open the scroll of the New Testament they would read a portion of the New Testament text and it would be followed by quoting the collected wisdom of, and tradition of rabbis of the past. All right, here's the text for today and now I want you to know, Rabbi Weinberg said it means this and Rabbi Wexler says it means this and Rabbi Lieberman explains, right? Not only is that boring, but it's not preaching with authority. Continually just quoting what somebody else said in the past is claiming someone else's authority. But you know what they were doing? They were just reading what other people had said in the past. Jesus bypassed all that and taught with authority. I mean, he even consistently called those other traditional teachers wrong. You and I just have been taught the wrong way in the past. They've taught you wrong things in the past. Like you can go through chapter 5 and verse 21. You have heard that it was said by them of old. You've, verse 27, you've heard that it was said by them of old. Verse 33, again, you've heard it was said by them of old. In other words, here are the things that you have been con consistently told. And then with each one of them, ultimately it is followed by, but I say to you. And so who has authority? Nobody but King Jesus. And if that wasn't shocking enough, he didn't just go beyond the scribes, he even went beyond the Old Testament prophets. What's the most common introduction in the Old Testament that the prophets of God used was 413 times in the Old Testament. You will read, Thus saith the Lord. Sermon on the Mount's, you don't get that, but you know what you get 14 times? I say to you, like I'm telling you. Well, there are times in the Gospels that Jesus assures us he is speaking on behalf of the Father. He doesn't have to do this. He is God. He doesn't have to say, thus saith the Lord. He can say, I'm telling you. And that's the authority. So why do we come to the Sermon on the Mount and not tremble before it? 